all of us are kind of responsible for bringing about the kind of world that we want to live in. And I think a world in which religion is treated with a kind of sense of history and diversity and respect um, is a world that I want us to live in. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I'm meeting with the wonderful Kate Hartman, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Wyoming. Hi, Kate. How are you? Good. It's so good to be here with you, Sarah. Thanks you for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I should have also said in your intro, you are also the director of Buddhist Studies Online. So we're going to be talking about your teaching both at the University of Wyoming and also in directing that project that you've started. Yes, I'm excited to talk about both. So I wanted to start by asking you kind of simply, who are you and what are your current projects? Yeah, so um, as you said, my name is Kate Hartman. I am a relatively recent PhD grad, having gotten my degree in uh, May 2020. Uh, shortly <laughs> thereafter, in the fall of 2020, I started here at the University of Wyoming, uh, where I teach uh, Buddhism in particular, but just Asian religions more generally. I'm the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation professor in Asian religions here, so many um, you know, expressions of gratitude to the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation and Buddhist Studies, which I know helps support this podcast as well. Yeah. My yep. primary research is on the history of Tibetan pilgrimage, uh, but I'm also, I'm a person who likes to keep sort of varied interests and projects. Otherwise, you know, things get old real fast. So I've <laughs> presented a paper on the opacity of karma. I've written about the modern Tibetan short story writer, Dundrip Gyal, and I'm currently starting a larger project on Buddhism, addiction, and recovery, and the ways that sort of the uptake of Buddhism in the kind of modern West has overlapped and informed addiction recovery communities. So that's very much on the horizon, but I'm pretty excited about it. You're, and I, sorry, I laughed a little bit when you said May 2020, because we also should acknowledge for, you know, the future aliens listening to this, that that means you were hired and started your job at like the very beginning of the pandemic that we're all still sort of begrudgingly living through. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I meant to say with that, it's, it's also must've been just a wild and crazy time to actually, you know, take this, the big step of becoming a professor, taking up your first big academic position in the midst of a pandemic that was demanding all sorts of, you know, flexibility, I guess, from all of us around our teaching. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I want to start with asking you, how was your teaching at the University of Wyoming affected? And then also, how was that different than the, or how did, or, and, and, or how did that contribute to um, what you dreamed up as Buddhist Studies Online? So the, sorry, that's a kind of double-pronged question, but yeah, we'll start maybe with uh, how was the teaching at University of Wyoming affected by this pandemic for you? Mm -hmm. It's interesting insofar as in some ways, it was easier for me to start during the pandemic. So a lot of my colleagues here in the philosophy and religious studies department have been teaching for 20 or 30 years, and they have a way that they do things. And so when they were forced to move online, it required changing everything. Whereas me, you know, fresh out of grad school, I created my classes to be taught hybrid. And so, you know, I wasn't faced with the task of changing something I'd done for a long time. I could really start from scratch and say, what's the thing that I want to get across and how can I make this work for my students, you know, probably half who were in person and half who were online. 
And the way that I taught it, you could kind of move between modalities. So let's say a student was primarily coming in person, but then their roommate tested positive. They were quarantined. They could be online for a little bit. They could come back. And so, you know, I really got to do that from scratch. That's so cool. Yeah. What I ended up going for was kind of a flipped classroom. So my in-person students and the online students would watch short, you know, 15-minute videos. They would do readings on this collaborative annotation app called Perusal. And what's nice about Perusal is you upload the PDFs and then students can sort of highlight and comment on things in the text and then they can respond to each other's comments. They can answer each other's questions. They can upvote, downvote, post reaction GIFs. And it keeps track of how many comments people have done on the reading. And so one nice thing about that is that it enables you to kind of make students accountable for reading, which otherwise might be the thing that they're most inclined to skip. Right. For my in-person students, we would often meet outside because I was trying to minimize risk and just discuss. So that was where you had discussions and activities. And the online students would do that in an online discussion forum. So sort of equivalent activities, but with each other online, whereas the in-person students, we did that together. Right. And online, did you monitor that group when they were online discussing or did you leave them kind of to their own devices? Left them to their own devices in the sense that it was asynchronous. And so um, at certain points in the semester, I did actually have a tri-modal thing where some students were live in person, some students were live on Zoom, and some students were totally asynchronous. Um, But I actually found live on Zoom was my least favorite modality. And I'd rather focus all of my attention on the students there in person. And for the students who wanted the online flexibility, they could do that. And then, you know, I'm grading those assignments. I'm responding to discussion boards. So um, I'm definitely, you know, keeping tabs, interacting with those students, but, you know, not sort of live in person, trying to monitor both a Zoom chat and an in-person chat. This is really refreshing, actually, to hear because you sound so positive about the experience. So did it feel um, productive? Like, did it feel like productive teaching? Like you were able to get through to both groups the same kinds of things? Or do you feel like they were absorbing material differently in those across those modalities? I definitely felt that there was a greater sort of... Um, distribution for my online students. So some students did really well. And those are often students who would have chosen to be online anyway. At the University of Wyoming, where I teach, you actually can get a religious studies major entirely online. And we do have a couple of faculty members who teach entirely online. They were the experts that I turned to. In some ways, those of us who taught in person and had to go to crisis online forgot that there was this whole class of people who've been teaching online professionally for years now, and they have great things to teach us. Um, So some students were used to and well-equipped to do the online. Other students, I think, would not have been online except for the pandemic. And those students, I think, definitely struggled. So I had a much greater percentage, I think, than I would have had had it been all in person of students who would just, at seven weeks, drop off the face of the earth and you'd never hear from them again. You know, whereas... I felt that some of those students, had I had them in person, you know, once I have your attention, I can work with that. I can draw you in. I can get you to do some activity. But with the barrier of the computer and with students struggling with mental health, students who feel the need to be working to support themselves or their families, 
um, it's relatively easier for students in that situation to kind of check out a little bit. And that was something that those students themselves would readily admit, that I learn better in person, but it's easier for me to be online because of work, family, X, Y, or Z. So tell me about a bit more about Perusal. Perusal sounds very cool. Um, I've heard about it before, but not that much. So you're saying you upload PDFs and then they can annotate them and ask each other questions and everything in that in on the PDF and see it's like a collaborative kind of Google Doc or something. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us in the humanities think of ourselves as fundamentally concerned with primary source literature. We want to teach our students how to read critically. And yet, Reading is the thing that our students can be the worst at, partially because some of them think of reading as like, I'm going to look at this word and then that word and then that word. And you looked at all the words, so therefore you've done the reading. And and that's, you know, a good case scenario some of the time. Um, and so the problem then is if you get to class and you want to have an interesting discussion, but if people haven't done the reading, they can't have an interesting discussion. So you end up trying to print out like little versions of things and you might come in thinking that students want to talk about A, B, or C, but actually they were confused about X, Y, or Z. Uh, Perusal solves a lot of these problems. So essentially it's a free program. You don't have to pay for it. And it plugs in really easily to a lot of learning platforms. So I teach through Canvas and you can set that up really seamlessly. So the grading and everything is done within Canvas. And students just have to create a Perusal login, but then you upload PDFs to Perusal And you say, you know, I require five annotations. And if you do five annotations, you get credit for this assignment. And if you don't do five annotations, you don't get credit for it. Perusal also has some degree of creepy AI analysis where they'll determine the quality of a student's comments. I've turned all of that off. And what's nice is that, let's say, you know, if I'm discussing something on a Tuesday class, I make it due at midnight on Monday. And then I get to look at their comments before we're in class. I know who's done the reading and what they've been confused about. And again, it just prioritizes reading as fundamental to everything that we do. So you've made it like trackable and incentivized. And because you're absolutely right. I mean, it's still something I struggle with all the time is getting students to read. Um, And you're right. We always say we're trying to teach them to read critically. But this sounds like a really cool tool to help with that. And students really respond to it. I've had a lot of students in their course evaluations mention that it was, that they really liked it. And in particular, it worked for the online students because that's particularly a space where you're missing out on that interaction with students. But insofar as they were interacting in the perusal comments, they got to know each other a bit more. And, you know, I make it clear to students, like, if you post like a reaction GIF or something funny or a joke, like that counts. I don't need your comments to be, you know, smart or to be analyzing it all the time. So just lowering the barrier, but getting interaction with the text and interaction with each other. So uh, actually helps create a sense of community that I think students really responded to. And were you often doing this with like primary sources? Were you often doing this with like sutras and translation and stuff? You know, this is always a question for those of us in Buddhist studies. How do you balance, you know, kind of tertiary source material? And, you know, what can be confusing is that students actually really often like a tertiary source. It helps them kind of place things in what they understand to be a understandable map. So I'll often have a textbook source as an optional reading. 
uh, but focus mostly on primary sources. And so, yeah, these are primary sources. Uh, they have the benefit of being relatively short. And another nice thing about perusal is that I can post comments in the reading. And so I'll post, you know, certain reading questions at the beginning of the reading or at a paragraph, you know, that sometimes the Buddhist can just like go off on something that's unrelated and students get bogged down in the details. You post a little note saying, what's important about this paragraph is X. Like otherwise, you know, note that this is what they're talking about, but you know, you don't have to worry about X, Y, or Z or posting a question that they'll have to answer. And is it, this is hybrid? This is called hybrid and hi, or high flex? Yeah, so the high flex system was actually created before the pandemic. Um, in some sense, again, we tend to think of these online education solutions as having emerged in crisis reactions to the pandemic, but there's been folks who've been doing these for a long time. And so high flex, I understand it, was created for master's degree students who had other careers. And so it was designed to be really flexible insofar as one week you could be in person, the next week you'd be in line, you could switch between modalities and that sort of thing. The goal of HyFlex, as I understand it, is to be really resilient. So the pandemic is a great example of something that happened and we needed to change our teaching. But let's say a student has, you know, an illness or a death in the family, or let's say you're teaching in some place that's affected by uh, climate change and there's disasters and there's, you know, big storm and the goal of resilient teaching is to have things in place before there's an emergency such that there's a kind of ready plan made in case contingency arises. And so this question of, you know, how to make all of our teaching resilient in case another wave comes or something happens is something that had been thought about in the HyFlex community for a long time. And so I adapted a lot of materials from them. But it's certainly not something without its costs. I do think that a certain subset segment of students do really well, and a certain subsegment of students get lost in this. Yeah, that's resilient teaching. I love that term. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your about Buddhist studies online? What is this? What is this wonderful thing? What are its goals? How's it been going? What's, what's up with that? Yeah, so my alter ego uh, is as the director of Buddhist studies online. This is a online educational platform started by Seth Powell and myself back in April of last year, April 2021. So the goal of Buddhist Studies Online is to provide accessible, affordable, high-quality courses on the history, philosophy, and practices of Buddhism to an online global audience. And the kind of motivation behind that was that we said, hey, there's lots of interest in you know mindfulness, meditation, yoga, Buddhism, X, Y, and Z. You can just see that if you're at the checkout in any grocery store, half the magazine covers are about mindfulness. And meanwhile, there's this great thriving academic community of Buddhist studies, and there's relatively little overlap there. I think this is growing. You know, podcasts like this, folks like Sacred Rights, or um, on Twitter, you can see this hashtag smart and public. Um, there's more and growing instances of academia reaching out to this broader audience that's interested. Um, but we still saw a gap there. And so what we wanted to do is take the resources of the academy, the kind of rigor, the scholarship, the training, and bring it to this general audience that's interested and that otherwise might be consuming kind of garbage nonsense on Instagram and, and YouTube. There's a lot of stuff out there. And we as academics should be proactively reaching out to that community. 
Yeah. And so the courses are four to six weeks and they're online. They're taught by top scholars in Buddhist studies um, who ordinarily would teach these classes that A, are expensive um, if you don't have two years and a couple hundred thousand dollars to go to Harvard or SOAS or something like that. And, and B, they're doing this great work, but again, it's for this very small audience. And so the courses that we have aim to replicate, it's never going to be the exact same, uh, but what you would get in a university level Buddhist studies course, but oriented towards an interested public who doesn't necessarily have a lot of experience. Often our audience is, are people who maybe have a meditation practice or maybe have been sort of interested readers, maybe they subscribe to Tricycle, but have never taken a formal course, or maybe they're someone in middle life or uh, have recently retired who took courses in the past and kind of want to get back into that, but it's hard unless you enroll in a graduate program. And so, you know, what's nice about that is it scales really easily. You can teach people online across the world and just making this scholarship more available to people and giving people opportunities to engage in this deep way. And so we very much are not teaching Buddhism. We're not teaching meditation. We leave that to qualified teachers in sort of uh, lineage-based traditions. Uh, We are providing this academic, historically grounded perspective, but one that we think can be compatible with people of any or no practice in any or no tradition. And how's it been going? Like, what's the turnout like? Are you having, is it like, are you having good response in terms of reaching out to students? Yeah, so we've um, been successful. And I should say that Buddhist Studies Online is based on the model of Seth Powell's previous company that he started in the same exact model about three years ago. It's called Yogic Studies. So Y-O-G-I-C Studies which similarly, lots of people interested in yoga, not a lot of great historical information available to the public. Let's get scholars of this to do public-oriented courses. And so this was a model that he had been successful with already for a couple of years. And during COVID, people reached out to him saying, hey, when are you going to do this for Buddhism? Because lots of people are interested in yoga and Buddhism. And so whereas yogic studies is more focused on the yoga thing, wanted to create something similar for Buddhism. And so it's been very popular. We had, you know, I think there's been about 250 students in the first course that we taught and, you know, between 150 and 200 students in each of the courses that we've had so far. And the courses are set up so that it's a blend of pre-recorded lectures that are released on a Monday. Students watch them on their own time. There's readings associated. There's a multiple choice quiz that's associated. And then there's optional live Q&A sections with the instructor on Fridays. And obviously not everyone can make them. It's hard to find a time that works for our global student body. But uh, folks can come and they can post questions on our discussion forum. The uh, instructor addresses these questions and they get a bit of live interaction. And then those sessions are recorded and posted for anyone who can't attend. And so it's a nice blend of you know, totally pre-recorded material that is very flexible, but also the opportunity for live interaction with fellow students and the instructor. That's very cool. Yeah. And what are the courses? What what have the topics of the courses been so far? So I taught the first one, um, Buddhist Studies Online 101, uh, Intro to Buddhism, History, Philosophy, and Practices. And what's also nice about these courses, I should say, is that they're all still up. So they run live, but because everything is recorded, they stay online in a way that other people can take them later. So people can still enroll in this. Then we did uh, 102, 
uh, Buddhist Meditation in Theory and Practice, taught by Daniel Stewart of the University of South Carolina. Then we had 103, Indian Buddhist Philosophy, taught by Dr. Karen Myers. Then we had a class on the Bodhicharya Avatara, taught by Jay Garfield. And so we split classes. We have 100-level classes that are you know, sort of survey classes oriented at beginners. And then we have 200-level classes that are text-focused. So Jay Garfield's was 201, focused on the Bodhicharya Avatara. Maria Haim is just now finishing up 202 on the Visuddhi Magga, uh, The Path of Purification by Buddhaghosa. And then our next course that we just opened enrollment for is going to be taught by Connie Kasser on Tibetan Buddhism. That's 104. We also have classes lined up taught by Jue uh, Liang, Buddhism and Women. Uh, Jeff Barso is going to teach a class of Buddhism and animal ethics. Uh, we have one on uh, Buddhism and the climate crisis taught by Dan Kozort. Uh, let's see, Buddhist art history taught by Becky Bloom. And then various others that are sort of in the pipeline and I'm consulting with instructors. And so, you know, to the audience that listens to this, if you're interested in teaching for Buddhist studies online, send us an email at info at buddhiststudiesonline.com. <laughs> Wonderful. Info at buddhiststudiesonline.com. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, this sounds, it's very cool. I love this idea. So do you see yourself in this work as like, Bill, like, are you a public intellectual? Do you see yourself as a public intellectual? Is that the goal? Maybe aspiring. <laughs> um, I would, I would really love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, part of this is influenced by, again, the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation in Buddhist Studies. Many thanks to them who supported my dissertation research, this job, this podcast. Um, and from what I understand, just a few days ago, they launched this, you know, public scholarship initiative, where, again, the goal is to take experts in these particular fields and connect them with an interested public and What's interesting about that is that it's hard to talk to the public. One, it's hard to get their attention. Two, it's hard to do it kind of responsibly. And three, it's hard because you don't get a lot of institutional recognition for this. Um, you know, none of this stuff counts for tenure or um, job applications for many of us in the field. So another sort of aspiring public intellectual thing that I did recently is there's a YouTube channel called Religion for Breakfast, and it's run by... Um, this guy, Dr. Andrew Mark Henry, um, who is a scholar of early Christianity and early Roman religion, but has this YouTube channel aimed at providing short, entertaining 10 to 15 minute videos that are sort of explainers in subjects of religious interest. So he just did one on Maya religion. He has series on, you know, um, Confucianism. I looked at the one on Shinto before I was teaching Shinto to my Religions of Asia class. And he contacted me to help write a series on Buddhism because he writes the ones that are in his field. But when he wants to do religions of Asia, that's not his field. He contracts with scholars and gets them to write these videos that then he sort of presents. And so I've, I, I wrote this three-part series on what is Buddhism, who is the Buddha, what's meditation and mindfulness. And what's crazy is this is probably the most popular thing I've ever done. It has 330,000 views or something like that. Oh, wow. As of last count, for a while, I was sort of obsessively checking it. Wow. <laughs> 330,000 views. Wow. And that's like an average video for his channel, you know. Wow. Um, it's, that's so cool. It's just this great reach, and it's a useful resource. So again, when Absolutely. I'm teaching online, I try to assign students a lot of videos and things, something that's going to seem to them a bit more accessible than readings. 
And particularly right. during COVID when you couldn't, you know, go on the normal field trip I would have to local religious communities or something like that. Just YouTube videos of that show lived religion to the extent that you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, there's a great question here. So do you do you think that writing for the public, like doing this kind of work that you're talking about, podcasting and this online teaching that's very much aimed, though, at public teaching, um, do you think that, yeah, like writing for the public and teaching for the public is and should be a responsibility of scholars? This is a really interesting and valuable question because, you know, terms like should and responsibility um, – you can answer these in a number of ways. And so the first thing that I'll say is um, one of the constraints of, of Buddhist studies in general, right, is that we have to make a living and we're trying to make a living in a world where academia is sort of starved of funding and hydro- higher education is facing all of these pressures and people are facing time pressures. And so any sense that academics should or have a responsibility to do something should never be mentioned outside the fact that one, it's really, really hard to get a job and that this public intellectual stuff is not rewarded on the job market. So there's no incentive for people to do it. It's really just taking away your time. And then if you do get lucky enough to have a tenure track job, these things are not rewarded in the tenure sense. So again, you're doing it on your own time, often in an unpaid capacity. Um, or if you're in a you know contingent position or a lectureship, you know, you're not getting paid extra or rewarded for this. So you're expected to do it kind of from the generosity of your heart. And and all of us, the fact that so many of us do it regardless is reflective of the fact that we do care and we do feel this responsibility. Um, but it should never be taken apart from the institutions in which we have to make a living, right? So I would love to see if we do think that this is something that we should do or have a responsibility to do, and I'd like that to be the case, that that should be rewarded in an institutional context, or at least there should be support for it. Because when there isn't, it feels very much like you have to take away from other things in your life. And all of us already have terrible work-life balance. Um, I am not a poster <laughs> child for like living my life in a responsible way. Um, yeah, maybe it's just phases. Don't worry. I think there's phases. <laughs> yeah. And so I'd love to see more support for that. It's exciting uh, that the Ho Foundation is supporting, you know, more public facing work. And I do think that that's hopefully getting more recognition. I'll also do a shout out for, again, the Religion for Breakfast channel. Um, he pays the scholars who write these videos. So again, there's a temptation to say, oh, I'll do this and you'll list it as service on your CV. And he pays you for your time, which I feel like is actually really good and responsible. Um, but in a broader sense, I do think that we have this responsibility regardless of the world that we live in that doesn't necessarily recognize this work, I think all of us, you know, in terms of our teaching, I try to think of like, who is a stakeholder in my teaching? It's um, the students in front of me. It's the communities that of living practice in which the texts that I study are still considered important. Um, But also, and this is a thing that I got from Charles Hallisey, is he thinks of the future as a stakeholder, right? What is the future that we're trying to create? And that's hard to think about. It's not something that you can easily have a conversation about. It's not something that's going to reward you. But all of us are kind of responsible for bringing about the kind of world that we want to live in. And I think a world in which religion is treated with a kind of sense of history and diversity and respect um, is a world that I want us to live in. We don't necessarily know 
the impacts we're having either, or like the conversations. Cause like, I think a lot of learning, even for me in my life has been like a seed was planted, but maybe year, it was actually several years of thinking about something before I would, before I would process it, you mm-hmm. know? So sometimes I think my students, our job isn't to give them answers or, or opinions. Our job is to plant a few seeds and hope some of them sprout. And they might not all, but they might. And maybe we won't even ever know because they'll be, you know, on with their lives. But I don't know. That helps me <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is also, um, you know, I do in, it, it, it's something that changes when the the audience of students changes as well. So in my intro to Buddhism class, we do end with, um, what I think are the most pressing issues of our day, which is, you know, structural racism and climate change. So we have readings on those subjects. Um, and I, you know, deliberately post that at the end of the course when we sort of establish norms of talking about these things. Um, I do think that it's important to bring them up. Um, and then, you know, so I don't shy away from that sort of politics, but in a terms of like a day-to-day mentioning specific politicians' names, I'll usually say, let's, let's save that. Right. for another day. Um, but in my upper right. level class, I, I have a class called Buddhist Ethics, where we spend the first 10 weeks reading the Bodhicari Avatara carefully chapter by chapter. This is a seventh century text by Shantideva, um, How to Lead an Awakened Life, um, mm. that goes through this account of human psychology and transformation. And then so we look at that for 10 weeks, and then the last four weeks we say, okay, how does this apply to climate change or structural racism? Issues that were not wow. on the Buddha's or Shantideva's purview. But if Buddhist ethics is to mean something, it's got to be able to speak to these different issues. And how does our reading of Shantideva inform how we think about those issues? And how do those issues affect how we might think about Buddhist ethics, right? Um, insofar yeah. as they tend to be collective issues rather than individual issues. Yeah. And what kind of, so that's so fascinating. What a nice structure to then move from the text to kind of applying it creatively to their, to the world as they see it. So how do you do that? What's the, what kind of assignments or what kind of responses have you gotten from them as you try to get them to apply a Shanti Deva, what they've learned from Shanti Deva about, um, you know, an awakened life to their own outlook, or, or specifically as regards racism or climate justice? Mm-hmm. So one of my um, general pedagogical approaches is, I, I know Bloom's taxonomy has been criticized. And for those in the audience who don't aren't familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, it's the idea that you sort of start by kind of remembering facts, um, sort of analyzing text, making arguments. And then as you move up the taxonomy, you get to sort of more creative or um, activity. Analytical. Yeah. yeah that... Um, you know, you start with these more basic skills, um, but the goal is to sort of learn to analyze or context switch or apply ideas to new contexts, create things. And so I, I often try to build to that in my classes where taking something that we've done in one context and learning to apply it in a different context. And so that very much informs the ending of this Buddhist ethics class where I try to get students to, you know, imagine... I'll invite them to have like a dialogue uh, between X and Y. So, you know, one person that we read um, is this this fantastic author, Charles Johnson, who's written this book called Dreamer. Um, He's written books like The Middle Passage, The Ox Herding Tale. Um, A wonderful philosopher who writes fiction that's informed by his experiences as a Black man in America, but also by his extensive experience practicing Buddhism. And they're just wonderfully funny stories as well. So 
you know, imagine a conversation between Shanti Deva and Charles Johnson, right? And how would that go? What kind of arguments are each of them going to offer? Or, you know, uh, I forget um, the Buddhist declaration on climate change where various Buddhist leaders got together and made a statement on climate change. You know, how would Shanti Deva give edits to that text, how would you cool? You know, imagine that this was the first draft and it was given to Shanti Deva. How is Shanti Deva going to have them make edits on this? Um, but what's tough about each of those issues is that I don't know what to do about no, right. structural racism. And so when we're asking these questions of what, how Buddhist ethics might lead us to think about these things, it's a really open question for me. And sometimes students turn to me and they imagine that I have an answer to them. And I said, I, I do not. <laughs> no, right. Which is okay, but I agree. I mean, um, it's uh, it's discomforting at first to be the professor of the class and say, I I don't know. I and and like these kind of questions must really develop also sort of student empathy. So this was one of our other questions for you. Um, apart from teaching content, um, teaching and learning is often so much about social and emotional learning as well. Um, so what are your thoughts on how to support social and emotional needs of students, uh, either online or in person? Um, what's, what do you think is your kind of role there and how you conceive of that for the classroom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really do. Um, and I start this from the first day of, of talking about mental health a lot. Um, I have in the past been very sort of uh, both motivated by and hindered by my tendency to be a bit anxious and worried. Uh, I imagine lots of academics uh, can empathize with that. And so I'm very sort of open with students about that. And I know that my students are struggling with these kinds of issues. Um, it seems that anxiety and depression is just so rampant among the populations that I work with um, that I want them to be open. I include sort of contacts with the university counseling center on the syllabus. I make a point to do that. I often highlight, you know, that the university counseling center puts on various events. And I also make spaces for students to talk about their own personal thoughts, feelings, beliefs, while we maintain an academic approach in the class. But I often open class or at various points in the class, hand out index cards and have them do minute papers or, in, you know, snap reflections or things like that, um, where they get to talk about their feelings and that those are not graded. I also have, you know, part of my students' final sort of portfolio that they're turning in is a two-page reflection at the end of the semester about their sort of personal thoughts and feelings about what they experienced this semester and how it affected their life in the class or how the class affected the way they understood their lives. And again, that's pass-fail. I don't want to be grading students based on their sort of feelings or emotions. Um, but giving them a space to reflect allows them to feel like, I know that they're thought, thinking and feeling humans, that I care about them as thinking and feeling humans, and that I know that their lives are difficult in ways that I don't understand, right? Yeah, do you think there's a space for, do you think there's a space for like wellness activities in your classroom? Like, like, you know, mind, like your own version of mindfulness meditations with your students or um, grounding exercises or like wellness kind of toolkit exercises, anything like that? I, I mean, this is such an interesting question and, you know, uh, Contemplative pedagogy is this thing that scholars in Buddhist studies are thinking about and our students are stressed out. I tend 
not to do that sort of thing. I will often bring in someone from the University Counseling Center uh, to, to lead a mindfulness thing, or I'll call in or I'll have a Zoom in from a lineage-trained meditation teacher to do that. Um, but one of the things that I emphasize in my class, and one of the reasons I love religion as a subject, is that there's many ways to be an expert in religion. And I try to really emphasize, okay, what did I do to get to be here? What did um, a meditation do to get to be there? What did a lineage-trained meditation teacher get to do to be there? What did a counselor at the UCC get to do to be there? And thinking about different institutions and the kinds of trainings that they do and what do they count as expertise. And so I very much you know, try to tell my students, I don't know anything about meditation. You know, <laughs> I may have my own sort of personal practice, or I said to them, or I may not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got here because I wrote, you know, a 400-page dissertation based on, you know, 15th century Tibetan pilgrimage manuals. Um, that doesn't make <laughs> me a good person <laughs> or, or a calm person or a, a skilled <laughs> meditator or something. So I do yeah. often want to expose students to that. Um, but I also view that as an opportunity to bring in voices from the tradition and to think about, right, like I often have students think about, oh, if we're reading the uh, Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the, the Sutra of Turning the Wheel of Dharma, it says we can't understand it unless we practice, right? W what does understanding count as in a liberal arts context? What does understanding count as in a Buddhist context? Just drawing their attention to the differences there, because in some ways, one of the assumptions that we have is like, oh, the liberal arts university way of understanding things is the way of understanding things. Um, in certain ways, I think Buddhism presents a real challenge to our typical ways of knowing. Um, there was another assignment you told us a little bit about before this interview that I wanted to ask you about. So, because we're really interested in kind of specific assignments and how we can, like giving people sort of advice to rethink the ways they can encourage their students to you know, learn through the material differently. So you had a unique assignment on the gradual path. So can you tell us just briefly how you taught that and um, how it how it went? Yeah, so one of the things that I love teaching, and I teach it in so many of my classes, is there's a translation by Charles Hallisey of um, a text called The Advice to Layman Tundila. And it's part of this genre of gradual teaching in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and this is a, sort of a genre that's not necessarily attested to um, in the Pali Suttas themselves, but it's sort of referenced, and it seems to be a very old way of teaching the path. And so this text is actually 17th or 18th century um, in Sinhala, but it's an example of this genre of the graduated teaching. And what the graduated teaching is, is often a talk by monks to lay people of the Buddhist texts the Buddhist tradition as a whole. So, you know, in such as we very much get like sort of presentations of this, that, or the other thing. And this often tries to present the path as a whole. And what's great about this text is one, it's short. I'm always looking for short things to teach students because my students won't read long things. Um, and it's an account of, um, you know, it's much later, but it presents itself as a sutta. So it starts with, thus have I heard, and the Buddha is hanging around, and a wealthy lay person, you know, comes up to him and asks for a teaching. And the Buddha presents this teaching to this wealthy lay person um, that goes through the steps of the path. And so the first one is generosity. 
just a praise of generosity. And then um, it'll go to Sheila or morality. And then it talks about the heavens for a while. And then it talks about the dangers of sense desire then the benefits of renunciation. And finally, it ends with this description of the great city of perfect peace that is sort of a description of Nibbana or Nirvana. And what I love about this text is, is you ask students to read it and it presents this like pretty accessible way of presenting the tradition. But then you start asking them about the order. You know, why do we start with generosity? Why is that an important first step? Why then do we move to morality? Why then do we talk about the heavens? And then, you know, it has this whole section about the heavens are so nice. So you should try to be reborn in the heavens because they're amazing. And then the next se section is talking about the dangers of sense desire. You shouldn't be interested in things because they're pleasant and nice. And you have to actually renounce all that. And then the next step is Nibbana. Um, and it gets students thinking about sort of the structure of the path of Buddhism. Uh, which is to say that, that it's this often conceived of as a multi-life path from ordinary suffering to awakening. And that people are at different points on the path and that different teachings are appropriate to different sorts of people on the path. And that each step on the path is meant to get you to the next step on the path. It's not that each step on the path is oriented towards enlightenment in this direct way. Um, but that they all work together and that this helps students understand Buddhism is a lived tradition where some people are oriented towards awakening and other people are oriented towards making it through their daily lives. But that the Buddhist tradition has a way of understanding how all of these things are related and how each step leads to another step and that the sort of grounds of this transformation is this gradual um, mental or a phenomenological transformation of how you experience the world. And so with this framework, which again, and this is coming out of the Theravada tradition, but it's you know totally applicable to Mahayana thinking about the path, that you know, if a student then reading something later in the semester says, oh, isn't this selfish? This person wants a good rebirth or they're praying for you know, wealth in this life. I say, okay, where on the gradual path are they? What are their motivations? You know. Yeah. How is this yeah. oriented towards getting you on the next step of the path? And so I very frequently have students graph out the gradual path where you know, one access is sort of time um, and one access is the level of realization. You can kind of map out this kind of stepwise process. And then as you read things, you say, okay, who on the gradual path is this oriented towards? You know, and again, having students in their own notebooks or in little index cards that I pass out, graphically representing this is a kind of context switching because they're often thinking about a text in terms of words, but draw me a picture of this forces them to kind of put it together. And then we'll return to that and say, okay, we're reading, you know, let's say we're reading the life of Oregon Choki when we're reading Curtis Schaefer's Himalayan Hermitus. Where is character X, Y, or Z on this path? What would character yeah, X right. say to this person or this person? Or how does pure land transform this vision of the path? And I often have them, again, try to graphically represent it, which is hard. Yeah. I don't draw very well at all. Um, students laugh at me whenever I draw things. But it just forces them to try to represent things. And that just in that process, um, yeah, they're... 
I'm a big advocate. I'm a big advocate of sketching. I love this. I, I actually, well, also I'm a trained art historian. So I often, you know, I have to teach everything through art, even when it's not really an art class. But, um, but I get them to just draw. Like, honestly, I mean, one of their participation things is just, you know, look at this picture <laughs> of this Korean Buddhist statue or whatever it is, or Tonka painting and draw it. Like you're, you have to make a sketch. But I do think we do something really good for them by even, and I tell them it's absolutely not being judged on the basis of whether it's good art or bad art. It's not the point. It's like you put in the 15 minutes to do this sketch or you don't. That's it, right? Um, but it it can really turn something else on in their brain and make them look harder, closer, of course, and think then like in the process, we're thinking with our bodies, right? So cool. Love it. I like the, I like your graph so much. All right. So thank you so much. You've been really generous with our time and I know we have to be mindful of that, but I want to ask just at the end, let's turn to your future. What are your thoughts about your goals for teaching and teaching in Buddhist studies? And I mean, more broadly, if we want to sort of end on a note of hope, like what's when Charles Hallisey gave you that incredible sort of challenge of considering the future a stakeholder, what, what do you want in that future? Yeah, that's uh, such a good question. And I think I'm going to be thinking about this for the rest of today. Um, in terms of, you know, my immediate future, it's, it's getting my dissertation into a book. It's developing new classes. I just got a thumbs up that I'll be able to teach a class in our sort of inter interdisciplinary honors program on anger that's going to be largely informed by Buddhist thinking about anger, but then also contemporary uh, Black Buddhists. Um, you know, there's the great book by Angel Kitta Williams and Lama Rod Owens, um, Love and Rage, um, or uh, Radical Dharma. So thinking about what is the role of anger in our lives. Um, you know, a lot of my students say, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Um, whereas, you know, again, Shantideva, who's one of my touchstones for the Buddhist tradition, will say that anger is always a bad thing. It harms both you and the object of your anger. You know, Stoicism thinks about anger. Martha Nussbaum has written a recent book about anger. Emily McRae has written about Tantra and anger. Uh, there's like a lot of great materials that I think... What, do what I'm always trying to do, which is speak to a contemporary issue, but from the sort of basis of Buddhism uh, or the basis of resources from Buddhist textual traditions or practice resources from Buddhist traditions. I'm also going to teach a course on Buddhism and Star Wars. Um, <laughs> Fun. <laughs> you know, we're always trying to just get students enrolled in courses here. Um, yeah. I would love to see in the future more support for the humanities more broadly from government, from donors, from university administrators, from students, people recognizing that engaging in these kind of deep questions, engaging in cross-cultural exchange, engaging in the study of history is itself important. Um, that's the future that I kind of want to bring about. You know, I just like want more, more, more. And the problem is that there's not necessarily institutional support for as much Buddhist studies as I'd like to see. I'd like to see more public engagement. I'd like to see both speaking to contemporary issues, but also not falling victim to kind of presentism that says that everything we have to do has to speak immediately to the present moment. Because as a historian, I do think that the past matters and that the past kind of provincializes our present in ways that are important. And just, you know, yeah. getting students excited 
finding ways that what we do in the classroom can speak to a larger world. So that's a varied collection of future-oriented things. Yeah. And actually, oh, I wanted to make sure I ask also about your own podcast. So you have a podcast through Buddhist Studies Online. Tell us briefly about that. What is, what's its goal? Yeah. So the Buddhist Studies podcast is part of uh, Buddhist Studies Online. So our courses are um, priced affordably, but we do charge money for them. But it was important to me to also produce something that was free and available. It's also worth saying we do offer scholarships for people who have trouble paying for these courses. So we never want money to be a barrier to entry. We do charge because I think that it's important to compensate people for their time and labor. And the instructors put in a lot of work to making these courses good. But so we have these podcasts. And in them, it's you know an hour to an hour and a half of instructors of Buddhist studies courses where I get ask them how they got into the field, what they're working on, what they think, and essentially a preview of what they think is important about their course. So I say to uh, people before we go on the podcast is... Most people aren't going to take your course, but what do you think is important about the Visuddhi Magga that a general audience interested in Buddhism might want to know? Um, you know, make the case that this is interesting and important that they should want to learn more. Or how does this engage with interesting issues? And so, um, I recommend that podcast cool. not for my hosting abilities, uh, but for the guests <laughs> that we have. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to listening. I'm really excited. Um, Buddhist Studies, I think, needs more podcasts. I, I really believe in the podcast format, too. So I'm so happy that great people like you are making more. Well, thank you so much, Kate. This was really a delight. Thanks so much for being here with thank us. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I really appreciate um, having the chance to talk with you. Awesome. Um, So you can find out more information about Kate and her work on her website, and we'll post a link in the show notes. Remember that show notes and a full transcript can be found on our website, which is at teachingbuddhism.net. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We would especially like to hear from you about what you think about today's episode. Send us an email or message on Facebook where we're the host center for Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. And lastly, I want to do a special thanks to our multi-talented creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, for managing the technical details of this whole podcast and our contributing producer, Dr. Francis Garrett. This podcast is supported by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening and be well.